but, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh God, you go ahead and talk because I was I, I got too excited and then forgot what I was even going to say. Go ahead. No problem. Um... <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people by creative people. I am the creativity enthusiast, Christopher Talon. Thank you for joining me today. I have a really fun one. I interviewed Joshua Marcella, a horror writer from Maine who's got two books out right now called Scratches and Severed. You should definitely go and check those out. I've got all the links in the show notes for the books, for his Amazon page, for his social media. And I hope that today you'll follow this guy on your favorite social media of choice. And uh, even more importantly, buy some of his work. Very talented, really good guy. We talked about his time in the army, some of the mental struggles he had post-military, and then getting into writing and creativity and all kinds of fun stuff. So hopefully you found a new person to follow. Yeah, just sit back, enjoy, relax. Here we go, folks. Get ready for Joshua Marcella. Are you pretty good about getting right to it when it's time to get to it? Or are you uh, a little ADD like me? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't do anything really until like a little after seven o'clock at night, uh, when my kids go down and I mean, late you do it all in the evening, huh? Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my reading, um, I would, I would start getting tired or I would be like, I made too many decisions today. I can't think about what, (laughs) what's fictionally going to happen next in this person's life. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that is a, a tough, tough part of it is, uh, everything happens at night. And so, I mean, on average, at most, I can bust out like maybe an hour or two uh, before I start getting like drowsy and start losing my focus. So, yeah, it's not I, bad I, if uh, you're really putting it all to it, though. Yeah, I mean, it, it can vary between a couple hundred words to a couple thousand words. So it all depends on how I'm feeling that night. If I'm not feeling it, I won't force it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I've I've definitely had days where I wrote like a page and a half and I was like this is all I'm getting today anything else is going to be garbage mm-hmm. yeah exactly. <laughs> but then I've had days too where I think the most I've ever written because I read on a yellow legal pad first mm-hmm. I don't know how you do it we can get into that too in a second but I think the most I've ever written in one sitting is like maybe 15 legal pad pages but usually it's more like three to five mm-hmm. yeah for sure which I don't know by the time you type it all out it comes out to like two and a half pages maybe <laughs> um so yeah, man, I read a couple of interviews that you've done um, on print, you know, on online. Um, and one of them said that you didn't start writing until relatively recently, right? Mm-hmm. So my question to you is, what were you doing with your creative energy before you started writing? Um, ooh, around, around the time I was in the military back uh, 2000. Two, 2003, 2004, I started playing music. Music has always been a big uh, love of mine. And, you know, I grew up in kind of a lower income house and never had any instruments or anything like that. Just listen to music. Used to record cassettes off of the TV, like, you know, music videos and stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was, I got big into music. And when I got home from the military, I, I bought like, thousands of dollars worth of like equipment and guitars and drums and piano 
and I was doing that a lot. And uh, I also enjoyed painting. I did, I do, uh, sometimes I do acrylic painting. I was doing that before, like around, started around the time, just before my kids were born. Um, and I've always struggled with ADHD, which was a, a problem, which is why I, same. Yeah, I, I couldn't focus well, on reading. I would read maybe like. Well, hold a on a second. Year. Are you telling me that you told your recruiter that you didn't have ADD so that you could get into the military? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm just kidding. They lied to us. We can lie to them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, you probably have to lie a lot, a lot of things um, to get in. But they asked me. They asked me, "Hey, did you know that you've got?" Uh, or no, they said, "Has anyone ever told you you've got flat feet?" The doctor, at, you know, the processing place. Yeah, and I just looked at him and went, "Nope." He goes, "Okay then." <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean it's it's hard i i i wasn't even diagnosed officially until uh i don't know maybe five or six years ago um when i had a really a good uh therapist out at the va she was like yeah it sounds like you're definitely struggling with like she she diagnosed me with with that and anxiety disorder on top of the ptsd that i was diagnosed with which is kind of a broad diagnosis so she kind of yeah. like actually pinpointed some of the things that I was struggling with. And one of them was definitely focusing. Um, like I said, I could only read like a book a year because I was so slow. And it was like September of 2019. I I picked up uh, the fourth book of the Dark Tower series that I mm. started like two years prior and got about halfway through and That's, stopped well, reading. Minute. I think I've got that one over here on the... Is that Wizard in Glass? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I've got that sitting over here. I got that for Christmas like two years ago and I'll read like 300 pages and then put it down and read something else. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was one of those things like I did, I, I took like a two year break on it and I picked it up and left, you know, picked up from where I left off and something just clicked in my brain. And all of a sudden I started reading, like I read that book and then I picked up the next one. Then the next one, I read the rest of the series. And from that point on, I started reading about four to five books a month. Um, and then in like that November, all, I ended up getting... This is all post-military. Yeah, this was just like two years ago. This was like 2019. Um, and then I uh, started, I got medicated uh, for this, which was the first actual medication that I had been on. I did a lot of self-medicating throughout my 20s and early 30s. And, um, and then they got me on a medication that helped me focus. Like just, it didn't, I don't feel medicated. It's just like takes off the, the, the anxiety and the, all that other stuff. And I yeah. started, um, I, I, I don't know. I went and saw a couple book signings, one with Joe Hill and one with Richard Chismar and kind of just decided I'm going to give writing a, a shot, you know, and I ended up buying a laptop and I think it was like January or February of 2020 was when I started writing scratches. And that was like the first thing I started writing. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I did a little bit of like painting music and stuff like that, but it kind of just all clicked all of a sudden one day for me. And I just was like, I'm going to do this and kind of been doing it ever since. You know, that's awesome. All right. So yeah. tell me, tell me if this sounds right. Joined the military, went to Iraq, got out, went to school, got a degree, became a stay at home dad, started writing. And now I'm interviewing you. Yeah, that's my story. Yeah. That's my exact yeah. same story. Yeah, man. <laughs> that's weird, awesome. right? Yeah, so it is. Where, I got to ask you, where were you in Iraq? Uh, Mosul. We were at okay. uh, Camp Marez. That's a um, that's a small base, isn't it? Well, I think it's 
it's it's almost like combined two two bases combined. There's Marez, and then right across the street is Diamondback, which is the airfield. And uh, okay, I, I'm not sure if you heard about it, but back in like 20 2004, there was a suicide bombing that uh, blew up our Chow Hall, and like 22 U.S. military members were killed in that one. And this was like right before Christmas, like a couple of days before Christmas. Um, sure. Yeah, and then. So it was yeah, kind was of two was, years before I got there. Yeah, it was, it was pretty chaotic. Uh, it was a pretty heavily. So you were there Wild area. West days. There was. Uh, yeah. I mean, I remember people saying because I was in Balad, which was the I don't know if it still is biggest, you know, U.S. base. And it's two bases like you were talking about, too. Half of it was Air Force. Mm-hmm. Half of it was Army and Navy and was in there, too, doing like some special app stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just can't imagine being off of that base after that was the only one I've been on. That one was huge and it had restaurants and movie theaters, but people uh, were saying that, you know, back in the day, guys were just walking around, like, you know, sometimes they'd put on the uniform. Sometimes they wouldn't, you know, their people would go a week without shaving. And then by the time I got there, everybody was like, Hey, put your uniform back on. Hey, mm-hmm. go back to your hut and shave. You know, it's like, yeah, had, it, it was very much like, acted that. like it was uh, the military again. <laughs> yeah. Like when we were there, um, like, after hours, I used to walk around in like my tie dye t-shirts and you know military shorts and didn't give a damn and like walk around in my sandals and nobody yeah. really questioned it. You know, we used to drink. Uh, we weren't supposed to, but we drink drink booze and uh, and then the unit. That you mean allegedly us, some people drank? Yeah. Over there? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we were getting replaced, the next the 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 battalion or company or whatever it was that replaced us took over like for the last few weeks that we were there and man, they had to carry like their gas masks and their hat, like their whole hazmat suits. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. they even had to carry like their shovels and stuff out to tower guard, which we were like barely, you know, bringing ammunition with us, let alone all that crap. And they were like hardcore. They thought we were all ate up and we're like, man, we've been here for a year. We're ready to go home, <laughs> you know? So uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I, you know, I wasn't a good fit for the military, but, uh, you know, I oh, did no. the best I could while I was there. And, uh, again, know. sounds, sounds like me, my footlocker, when, um, we were staging our stuff to, to go home from Iraq, we had to put all our stuff out and they, you know, they have like customs come and inspect it. They do a really weak job, by the way. It's really easy to bring stuff back allegedly. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, while I had my footlocker out there, some people came by with paint pens and painted flowers and a peace sign on it and wrote hippie. <laughs> Yeah, when we were in Iraq, I read the. They gave us a bunch of books, and one of the books they gave us was the 9/11 Commission. I started reading. I was like, "Do you guys believe this shit?" And they're like, (laughs) "Oh, you're a fucking hippie. Get out of here." Yeah, yeah. I had a, uh, I had a hemp. My dog tags were actually made of hemp rope. I cut off the the beads, (laughs) got hemp rope, and then I actually had like uh, a peace sign and this little like medallion thing my grandmother gave me, and and people used to make fun of me. Uh, They knew I was like. They're like, man, you should have been in Vietnam, not in Iraq, and all these different things like that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my my nickname, we had like, we each had call signs for like, you know, our walkie-talkies and stuff, and um, they were fun names, like all of them. Uh, and mine was Rasta because everyone knew I was like a burnout. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it wasn't a secret over there. I mean, they knew what I was like, and and when I got home from the military, like literally, we did our demobilization debriefing. And then I went home that night, took my uniform off, and never went back. And yeah. uh, 
I told them flat out, I'm like, yeah, I won't be back when we get home. And they're like, oh, you'll get arrested and all these things. I'm like, that's fine. If they want to use the resources to come and arrest me, have at it, but I'm not coming back. And they never, they never did. It was like, you know, I ended up ETSing in like 2009. And, um, but yeah, no, it was, I was very much way too much of a free thinker. Yeah. Even though I, I got along with most of the people and, and we had, you know, we made the most of it over there. It was, it was, uh, you know, joking and camaraderie and a lot of my second book severed a lot of that camaraderie and stuff is even though it was a Vietnam book and it was Marines. Um, it's very much, you know, that's exactly how we used to talk to each other, like constantly hounding each other and, and giving each other shit. And it was a way of survival. It was a way, you know, mental survival. So you don't get like, you know, you're not down in the dumps or you don't like, you know, lose your sanity. You want to hang on to your humanity and any way you can. So, yeah, um, that was, you know, that was a big, big thing for over there with most of us. Yeah. I applaud you too for uh, talking about mental health openly because I don't know if I've brought it up on this podcast, but I brought it up on a podcast that was more about mental health that I guessed it on once. Mm-hmm. When I came back from Iraq, um, I was working on helicopters and I was out there while they were taking off and bringing them back and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I was used to an environment where they were like, go now, motherfucker, get, go, go, go. We got to get this, go. And then I came back and the, uh, I actually went over. Okay. Hold on a second. I swear to God, I'm a storyteller. Okay, so I was in Jacksonville, and somebody came around and was like, we need people to go to Iraq working on the same helicopters because, you know, we need to be there 24-7. We just don't have enough people to rotate in and out. So I was like, I'll go. You know, I'd been in for a year, and all I had seen was Florida. I was like, this sounds awesome. (laughs) Get there. It's not so awesome. Really stressful. I come back, and then the place that I originally came from shut down, like, unexpectedly. I mean, they were... It was an anti-submarine uh, squadron, so it's kind of outdated. Um, but they just shut that down. They're like, nope, send them everywhere else, and we'll get those helicopters. And I got sent to a place where I processed travel claims for, like, two months while I got waited to re- get reassigned somewhere. And there was somebody that couldn't say my name. They said it wrong a couple of times. Thought it was funny the way that I was like, uh, you know, that's not my name. You're not saying it right. And then they said it as a joke, and I turned around. And I was like, you know, if you can't say my fucking name, then just don't say it. How about that? But I, you know, said that at like kind of a scream level <laughs> inside an office. And everyone's like, we need you to go to medical and visit somebody in the mental wing. And I was like, okay. They're like, no, like right now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause everybody thought this guy from Iraq's just going to like punch somebody in the face one of these days. Um, yeah. And then it was Jacksonville, like I said. So the, the person that I got sent to see was, uh, uh, I don't know if she's a doctor or just a Mrs. I'll say Mrs. Mrs. Tebow as in Tim Tebow's mom. And she was like, yeah, you have, she called it post deployment anxiety. And she's like, it's kind of on the PTSD spectrum, but it's very low grade. You just like are constantly like going to be anxious and upset about things. I was like, Oh, cool. (laughs) Like, do I need counseling for that? She's like, no, I don't think so. And then I never went back for more counseling. So, well, not while I was in the military. And then every time they ask you, uh, I don't know, you probably get this too. When you come back from Iraq, they give you a checklist. Like, how does you, how do you, how's your mental health when you're watching the TV? Do you feel like people are speaking directly to you? You know, and they're like, by the way, if you check any boxes, yes, you're going to have to go see somebody and it's going to go in your record. So just keep that in mind. So we're all like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> That's common Good too. Time. Like a lot of people during uh, the debriefings and stuff, you know, they almost like threaten you if you, you know, like you said, if you speak up like about anything that's bothering you and not only that as a stigma, you know, you don't want to be that guy that all these other guys are rough and tough. And, and yeah. then you're Can the one trust that's this like, guy now. He's all, he's on the edge. And for me, it wasn't a big deal. I, I just wanted to get out of the military. And then after that, I kind of was off the grid for a while, just living, doing landscaping and stuff. And then when I eventually moved back to this area where I live now, I got a job working as a temp out at Togus, which is the VA here. Mm. And I was working as a carpenter and I was talking to this old guy and he was a Vietnam veteran. And there's you know a lot of veterans that work out there. And I was telling him about whenever I watch certain movies with like a lot of blood or gore or really intense violence, um, realistic stuff, I was basically having these panic attacks to the point where, you know, I have to lay down, leave the room, turn off the TV and just lay there until my body calms down because it was my body's like flight response, you know? Yeah. And he goes, you know, you should definitely consider coming out and talking to someone because it sounds like you might have PTSD. Mm. So I did. That was like, I don't know, maybe a year or so after I had been home and I did that and came out. Oh, so you spent a year just bugging out then a little bit, huh? Yeah. And I I lived with one of my buddies who we became like real, like best friends. He was one of my buddies I served with. We actually lived together when we got home and he, uh, he was going through the same things, like a lot of messed up stuff. And we kind of both started getting into therapy at the same time, kind of going on the same journey. And yeah, sure enough, they diagnosed me. Um, and then eventually I got mixed in with the DAV, the Disabled American Veterans, who gave me an actual rating of like 30% to start. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then going forward, I, I was going to counseling, I was doing group counseling, different things like that. And, you know, you're still struggling with those issues, even though you're going to counseling. It's not like you have to work on things, you have to avoid things, you have to know your boundaries, you know. Yeah. I tried different medications, um, eventually got off of them because I was also self-medicating and you're trying to do all these different things that, you know, they're obviously detrimental to each other. And yeah, um, yeah and then I uh, eventually got a full-time job out there and it was around 2012, 2011, 2012, I, I started really noticing I was really struggling with like anger, hypervigilance, things like you were mentioning. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was a driver at the time where I drove patients to the VA from their, like from their home to the VA and back. And I was noticing like, I was kind of driving like really offensively, like passing cars, uh, getting on their bumpers and things like that. And I was yeah. also, I was working on my own, like in the winter, I'd be doing snow removal and stuff on the grounds. Um, yeah, I was I'm like, in Michigan. He's in Maine, so we're both yeah, familiar yeah. with the <laughs> extreme <winters>. snow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would be like shoveling and be like early in the morning cleaning up so people can get into the hospital, and I would just like rage out. And there was a few times where I just took my shovel and just smashed it into the ground and destroyed it, and then I'd like throw it away and, and hide it so no one. Right, I don't mean to. I don't mean to laugh at your pain, no. but like, yeah, trust me, it's it's as much that relatable laughing. As, as it, yeah, it just seems like it seems like crazy and over the top and dramatic, but it's what felt right at the time. And when you're struggling like that, um, you don't know any other way, but to do that, you know, do something like that as a release. So, you know, I'd been going years and years to, to counseling, um, 
off and on. And I started school in 2010. Originally, I was going for computers. And eventually, I changed my uh, major to mental health because I was I was like, you know what? I, I I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy like giving advice and and I'm really good at it, even though I don't take that advice myself. Um, <laughs> and so I switched my major to mental health and, and ended up getting a bachelor's degree. Um, and right out of, before I even graduated, this was like a few months, I was doing an internship. I got a job working at the, the drug court, which is like where they take uh, people that have like drug addiction and they're also in, in trouble with the courts. They've broken the law in some way. They can go through this drug court program and uh, they have to get drug tested and they have to do it for like a year at least and things like that. And then they get their charges dropped or reduced and stay out of jail. And I ended up working with the veteran faction of that. And Ooh, that was must have been an interesting getting, population. Yeah. And it was it was good, but it was also like my anxiety was on screech. And um, so I knew this wasn't a good job for me because you're basically on call 24 seven. You're in charge of like 18 guys. Yeah. Um, and if you're and, if uh, you're an empathic person, it's hard to not let that affect you. Yeah. And I mean, there's times where you have to put these guys in jail if they break their restrictions and things like that. And I had to go to the jail a lot. And I noticed when I'd be going into the jail, you get put in this tiny little room with one of your guys and there's doors banging and slamming all around you. It's tight space. Um, it was just too much for me to handle. And that was right around the time. Um, I did that for less than a year. And then uh, I basically gave them my two week notice and said this, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to go back to school, get my master's. This isn't really a good fit for me. Um, and then a few few weeks later, my wife came home with a positive pregnancy test, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna stay home and be a stay at home dad because right now this is not, you know, a good time for me. Even though I just just got my bachelor's degree and all that, it was like, you know, it was a relief because I knew that was what I was. We had talked about it before too, because you know, with my military pension and stuff, eventually my disability was increased and. Uh, all that stuff so we could afford it. You know, I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't like bringing home nothing at all. So, right, right. Um, so yeah, that's been a, it's been a challenge, but it's also been good for me because it's, it puts me in a position where I can support my family in in multiple ways. Um, and, you know, I'm not like, you know, in this hostile environment all the time, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, know. I got a pretty similar one there too. I had uh, three kids already. So I, one kid when I was in the military, you know, when I started the military, second one while I was in, then I was going to school while I had a kid in elementary school and a pretty much a toddler. Then as soon as I started working, I had a third kid. And then as soon as I landed a permanent job, my wife came home with the, you know, one of those positive, well, came home actually in the morning, right before I went to work. She was like, Hey, uh, <laughs> she holds up things. She's like, I think I'm pregnant. And I was just like, Oh shit. And at the time I was like, this is the worst thing ever. I just started my teaching career. Like I'm really dug in with this school now. And, uh, but then it turned out to be, you know, like, well, I can't afford to keep doing this because I'd only bring home like 150 bucks a month with all the childcare and stuff we'd have to pay. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, well, you know, stay home with the kids and write that book that you've always been talking about, you know, which I thought I could do while I was teaching, but no, <laughs> too much, too much work. Yeah. So then it turned out like, you know, I'll write while these kids are, you know, doing tv time or well you know the baby's on his stomach i'll write 10 minutes and i'll flip him on his back right 10 minutes 
and uh, I got most of the first book that I wrote done that way. And now I have time while they're all at school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's and great. I write some blogs for people for for a little bit of income too. So I can say that I make about as much money writing as I did teaching, but you know, not really as much as I made teaching when I had to spend all of it on childcare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah. is a struggle, definitely. Even even now, we only send our kids. One of them we send twice a week and the other one, the younger one, we send once a week. And, um, you know, it's like a hundred bucks a week. Uh, and uh, it's good for them. It's mostly for socialization. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the, especially now, man, kids are, I'm worried about the kids that like their parents are like, you can't go outside at all. Like, you know, mm-hmm. those kids are going to grow up so weird because of this pandemic. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta put them in front of other people sometimes. Yeah. That's been a challenge. And uh, I mean, I don't want them being home with their, high strung hypervigilant dad every day you know what i mean like they're gonna think everyone in the world is a loose cannon you know dad dad i'm trying (laughs) to make a sandwich for you (laughs) leave me alone (laughs) but i think they're growing up to be well-rounded good kids and uh i think a lot of that has been you know having a dad at home and and their mom you know she you know she's a great mother she works you know hard and uh it's been a good it's been a good thing for them i believe and our oldest will be starting uh, pre-K next year. We decided to keep him home this year because he was only three at the time, even though he's four now. He's one of those late summer, yeah. you know, babies. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping, you know, when they're in school and stuff like that, if, if I can afford, you know, by then I'm hoping to have, you know, I'll have like four books out by um, this fall and, uh, and I'm maybe constantly... a Hulu deal. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows, man. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly writing something and, I, you know, I have big projects coming up down the loop, down the road here. So I'm hoping, you know, keep that steady income coming in and uh, keep, you know, pimping myself out there to the world. And hopefully I can make this a full time gig, you know, with my military uh, disability and all that stuff. So we'll see. See how it goes. Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned something there, pimping yourself out. I want to talk about marketing and promoting, but first I want to get into a little bit more the books that you wrote and kind of how you wrote them. I read the, uh, the you know, the sample that they give you for scratches on, um, on Amazon. And I agree with uh, one, of the, one of the people that left a review. They left a pretty good review and the only one complaint. They said, this book is too short. I wanted it to be longer which is the best, I think, complaint you can have. Yeah. But they said they also liked your style because it's, um, you know, the, the language is simple and direct. And when you when you do that, it allows the brain to work sometimes too, mm-hmm. you know, which I know you've read on writing. Have you ever read um, Elmore Leonard? He wrote a book. It's more like a pamphlet. And Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules on Writing. No, I haven't. One of the rules is avoid adverbs, which I saw you <laughs> uh, said that was the best advice you ever saw. So I didn't know if <laughs> you read that too. Get into your whole story of when you first started actually writing and how you kind of found your style and then how the eventually these uh, stories came out. So like you mentioned, I did read um, last winter, I read On Writing and it's such a, you know, Stephen King on writing, happy birthday, King. <laughs> Anyway, by the way, it's yeah, that's right. I saw that on Instagram. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. All right. Uh, yeah. So I read that and it kind of just was an eye opener. It kind of blew my mind. The way he breaks things down is so simplistic and, you know, it's uh, entertaining at the same time, too. Not very many is, people yeah, can I mean, write his... nonfiction and be entertaining like that. 
Yeah, his stories are great. Uh, it's not just all like do this, do that. It's like he brings up this toolbox, you know, like mm -hmm. metaphor and like all these different things. And I read that and it kind of just put a bug in my ear. And then um, it changes the way like you I read, doesn't it? You read something and you go, it does, yeah. oh, I'm going to steal that. Like Elmore Leonard does this thing. I don't know how much Elmore Leonard you've ever read, but he'll um, have somebody talking and then he'll end a quote mid sentence without any internal exclamation. Do the quotes. And then he'll have a dash with like their thought or their movements that they're doing. Then another dash, then continue a quotation and the sentence. And I've never seen anybody else do that, but I stuck it in somewhere. And editor was like, you can't do that. I was like, Elmer Leonard does it. So yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah, it was, it really did. It, it opened my eyes to a whole new way of looking at like writing and books and yeah. Um, he kind of just makes you feel like if you think you can do it, go ahead and try it and, and do it and, um, you know, read a lot. He gave you all these great tips. So, oh yeah. His reading list at the end of that book is ridiculous. He's like, and if you're looking for some good reading, here's 300 books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the guy reads a lot. He's like, if you, you constantly want to be carrying a book with you at all times, you know what and I mean? He does. In case There's yeah. pictures of him at Boston Red Sox games, reading books <laughs> in between innings. Yeah, exactly. He's it's it's a lifestyle. And yeah. uh, so I took all that, you know, to heart and um, I kind of officially decided this is what I'm going to try doing. I, I went to uh, Richard Chismar and his son, Billy. Um, and is, is he a man guy, too? No, Richard is uh, Maryland. Um, okay. But he came up to Bangor and did a book signing to promote uh, Gwendy's Magic Feather, which was his newest release back in 2019. Mm -hmm. And there was also like artist Glenn Chadbourne, who is a Mainer. He's worked with Stephen King, Cemetery Dance. He's a really awesome like horror artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so they came up to Maine and uh, to promote the book. And just, it was a tiny little bookshop. Uh, it's called uh, Gerald's. Um, oh my God. I, 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 every time I get in these situations, I forget. Um, Gerald's Game in, and Comic Shop? <laughs> yeah well it's right downtown uh gerald winters okay it's, so it's like this little stephen king specialty like bookshop it's awesome it's downtown there was only like maybe less than 40 people there total maybe 50 and uh it was really intimate and so he him and his son billy they were all talking about how they got started and uh things that inspired them and the one thing that richard mentioned was like he was in college Stephen King's it came out and he read that and he's like, this is what I want to do. I want to write. I want to, I want to be an editor, do something in this world. And that's when he started like cemetery dance, you know, publications and yeah. stuff. And, and on my way home, my brain was just like, like churning all this information. And it was just so inspiring. And like everything they said, like, I was like, that sounds amazing. I want to do that. Like researching and, and looking things up and, just coming up with idea like stories is such a fun thing you know what i mean we all do it every day we tell stories we do this but the idea of like writing a, a book or something and people wanting to read it and it just really it, it it clicked with me and so on my way home i was like man i'm gonna do this i'm gonna start writing and i i kind of came up with that idea the the idea for scratches is, is based off of my actual childhood where I lived in a house right next to a cemetery literally like 20 25 feet away and I moved my room into the basement did you tack up blankets for walls and things I did I did all that stuff yeah. is real the incense like that Connor lights in his room 
Um, I had a single mother, but I did have two sisters, which he doesn't have. Um, and I mean, I was literally like envisioning my room and everything when I wrote the book. And so my original idea was like, it's going to be a short story. This kid, he's going to have this neglectful mother and he's going to hear scratching on the outside of the foundation of the house. And he's going to try to convince his mother like, Hey, you know, there's this weird stuff happening downstairs and, and she ignores him. And then one day she goes down there and he's gone and there's like writing on the walls or blood on the wall. And that, that was my original story. Yeah. And you know, like, like most people will tell you when you start writing, it kind of writes itself. It kind of takes on a life of its own. And you're just like, you know, you're like the, the, the person like that it just channels through you and it writes what it wants to be, what wants to be written. So I was like writing this and then all these different ideas kept coming to me and it was getting longer and longer and longer. And my first draft was only like 15,000 words. And I was like, okay, cool. This is, it's done. And then I did like two or three more drafts, which ended up being like, it ended up being, you know, novella length. And I was like, Oh, well, so I have this book here and I had no idea. I didn't know what to do with any of it. You know, so I started looking up, Googling, how do I do this? And actually author Ross Jeffrey, who's from uh, Whale, uh, Bristol over in the UK, we found each other through like a live chat on Facebook. Uh, Gemma Amore was doing like a live chat talking about self-publishing and stuff. And I met Ross through there and he sent me a message. And I, I think at the time he had only had his book, Juniper. Um, that was, the, I think his only book that he had written so far. And he was like, hey man, if you want me to, to beta read, I didn't know what beta reading was. I didn't know what blurbs were, any of that stuff. And he's like, if you want me to beta read this, send it over. I'll tell you, if I like it, I'll write you up a blurb for the, you know, for your book. And, uh, and gave me some advice. And he, he went through and almost like did a little bit of editing for me. He's like, you know, I use the word the a lot. And so I like, when I got it back, I actually looked and I was like, you're absolutely right. I had like, then you can never unsee instances it. Of the. It's like, if you cut some of those out, it'll help your pros. It'll help your, you know, and I was like, you're absolutely right. You don't need the, and, and, and all this stuff like, all the time. So I did a bunch of edits and, and it was still a hot mess. Like the first, first draft I ever put out was like a hot mess. There was no Oxford commas. It was uh, just, and that was some of the first reviews I got was, you know, this was a great story. I liked the book, but you know, the, it needed an editor and it needed this and that it was you know we misspelled different names and things like that and so um anyway like you said a, lo a lot of those early reviews were like this was great but I felt like it was too short I wanted more of this world and that was a continuing theme like throughout a lot of the reviews that I got because I used to read my reviews like all the time and whether they were good or bad it was it's you know a learning experience as a new writer so I eventually, yeah, especially like you said, you'd never heard beta reading before. I hadn't until yeah. I, somebody was like, Hey, my, I had finished my book and somebody was like, Hey, my cousin's an editor. And then I hooked up and she edited it for me. And she pointed out that I say just too many times. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh God. You go ahead and talk. Cause I was, I, I got too excited and then forgot what I was even going to say. Go ahead. No problem. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that was when when you get to the end, I leave the ending of the book kind of ambiguous uh, without spoiling anything. And that was because I liked the idea of people not knowing what's going on at the time. I wasn't sure if, you know, this is going to be a standalone book or 
if something else is going to, you know, if I'm going to write a second or third book, if anyone even wanted me to write another book, I had no idea. Um, and so when I got those reviews, I was like, people were like, yeah, I want more. I want more. So then I was like, you know what? I, the way the story's written, certain things happen. This is like a perfect opportunity for me to take this on and actually write a series. And I was like, it's gotta be a trilogy because people get bored. This isn't a fantasy series. Like if you write more than that, you know what I mean? It gets, yeah. gets to be too much. So I, I thought a great place to start would be to write a prequel to this, which is severed. And that was like, the um this because i i was like this is a great opportunity for me i knew this was what i was going to do i didn't know how i was going to do it or what the story was going to be but because when you read the book there's certain things that happen that hint at like the origin of certain things in the book so i was like well it's already right there i've already written it and so i actually went and started writing i think it was last i don't know last win end of the winter or something i started writing severed and uh, people could already tell, like, once I got, and I could tell myself, like, my writing had already improved. Like, a lot of people say halfway through scratches, it, it almost seems like a totally different author because the writing gets so much tighter. Um, and that's because when I was writing it, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just writing and blah, blah, blah. And um, But I just well, started to feel more comfortable, you know what I mean? And I want to ask you, too, sorry to interrupt you again, um, but something that I read that you uh, said was the more you write, the more comfortable you feel taking risks and, you know, yeah. facing whatever people might say negatively. Do you think that uh, at that point you kind of clicked in or do you think, you know, you had just buffed up some skills that, you know, a muscle that hadn't been flexed as much the the first half or a little both? Yeah, I think it's a little of both. I mean, uh, my only, the only person that was reading my stuff originally was my wife and when and she's brutally honest and when she said this is really good like i really like this um and she gave me some good advice on uh like building up janet the mother's character more like she was kind of like a side character originally and building her up more and and uh just things like that um yeah you get a great sense like, of that okay. character just from that first sentence where it's like give me another beer this one's piss warm yeah and people <laughs> like, say i know like, that person they love, yeah they love the character arcs that these characters take because your mind gets changed so much by the end of the story. And then with severed, a lot of people say it, it blew their minds because it totally changes your perspective when you read scratches. And a lot of prequels don't do that because you kind of know what's going to happen. You've already read the later part of the story, but when you read severed, you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting my mind to totally be changed about such and such, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty cool. And it's a good feeling because, uh, you know, it all start. It all came from nothing. It all came from this. You know, just this simple little idea driving home one night and from Bangor, um, and uh, yeah. So it was. Yeah, it was a little of both. I think it's. It's. I started feeling comfortable. I started taking a little more chances, um, and just recognizing that there's potential there because I did read a lot, and um, you know, it's. I don't know. It, it's, it's funny. I don't, I don't really know what happened to be honest, but it's already like become apparent that my writing has improved because I've done it. I've been doing it more and I'm taking it more seriously. It's not rushed. Like it was when I first started writing scratches, um, my collection even that I, I have coming out. Oh yeah. Mazel tov on that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that was a, I took a lot of risks on that as well. Like the, the stories are different. The styles are different. Um, you know, the, and not just like, 
the plot and the character, like the style of stories are different. Like there, there's some that are in first person, some are in, some are like almost like, one, one of them's like really short and it's like, it has a weird perspective about it and just things like that. Like I liked take, taking chances because I think people get like, especially with collections, especially uh, solo collections, people kind of start to get, you know, bored or exhausted with, you know, this, cause you're, you're only reading this one author. And if like, I think it was when I read night shift mm. really brought that into perspective. Cause each story is so different. Um, you know what I mean? You have like this Jerusalem's lot, which is like this almost like Lovecraftian type story. And then you have, I can't remember the name of it, but the uh, toy soldiers where like these toy plastic army soldiers come to life and, and, you know, go after this guy. And there's yeah. like, I don't think there's any dialogue. And then the ledge where this guy, like, you know, it's just like, Oh, that was the different. one with the ledge on it. The guy has to go around yeah. the whole building. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. goes around the whole building. And I, I was thinking um, in my mind, I was going to ask you next, was that the one that had this story in it? Yeah. 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 Wait, um, that was the one that had the, the killer washing machine too, right? Yeah. Well, that was a killer washing machine or a printing machine. I can't remember. Yeah. It's, um, or wait, no, it was a pressing, uh, like press. A, the, yeah. Close. Yeah. Press. Yeah. Yeah. And the graveyard shift, which is the one you wouldn't think the, from uh, the sound of that, like, are you even trying? But like, yeah, he makes it good. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's, what's funny is like, some of the stories are fun. Some of them are heartfelt. So, and that's kind of what I took inspiration from that. And, uh, they're not all like scary horror stories. You know, there's one story about loss and, and, but, uh, I think it's, uh, op- you know, it's, it's, varied enough to where someone everybody's going to take something from it yeah and uh i started writing that like last year i after i finished scratches i had no idea what i was going to do and then i ended up restarting a short story i'm like you know what i'm gonna write a story about a ghost ship tonight because i like ghost ships and the ocean and and stuff like that and that ended up being one of my favorite stories um and it it's very layered it's very um, it's not just like, oh, there's a ghost ship that's, you know, going after these this other boat and whatever. It's there's a lot to it. And um I've submitted it to a few places that rejected it and didn't like it. And then when I um sub- I, I kind of con well, Crimson Creek Press contacted me and said, Hey, if you'd like to send over some of your work, we'll check it out and see what we think. And if we like it, we'll talk about publishing your collection. And I sent over that story and two other stories. And they love that story. It really just blew them away. They were like, this is one of the best stories I've read in a long time. And your writing is great. You don't add a lot of fluff. Um, and it, it, it just, you know, that boost in confidence, it really makes it so you're like, okay, I can, I can definitely do, I can take chances now. Just because one person said, like, I don't like this. We're going to pass on it. Doesn't mean you're not going to find that one person. You know, one day, maybe that person will be a, you know, uh, agent or, a you know, movie, a screenplay writer or something. Um, and you just got to take those chances because, uh, you never know who's going to, who's going to read your stuff, who's going to like it. Yeah. Um, and, and don't take rejections to heart because, you know, sometimes that's just like one or two people that read it and they're like, yeah, this isn't for us, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not going to blow somebody else's mind. So, um, yeah, th- that all came with, you know, getting, doing it more, getting more confident, uh, feeling more comfortable in my craft and uh and it, and it it's still like i still today like I'll, I'll be writing something and i'm like uh this doesn't feel right or i don't think this is any good um 
you know, it never, that, that aspect of it never goes away. And I think it keeps you humble. I think it keeps you, um, down to earth, you know what I mean? Like, so you don't get so full of yourself that, you know, even Stephen King, like he's, he's very, uh, the dude's very prolific, but he's still like as humble a guy as you could expect. You know what I mean? He's not like, and I think after he dies, they're going to be like, here's 16 novels he wrote, uh, but didn't think we're good enough. (laughs) Like, right, he's like the Tupac of literature. Like, I mean, I know for a fact he's got a book about people who get stranded on an island that he was like, eh, I just didn't think it was good enough. Yeah, they'll probably, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that happened with Crichton. I want to say Pirate Latitudes. Well, yeah, I don't know yeah. if he didn't want to get it published, but they just like found yeah. it. They're like, oh, shit, he's got a totally finished yep. book here. And that was an awesome book. I love that book. I, I really liked it too. Yeah, and it was you know so different from his other work but sometimes you know what i mean you just that gotta guy put it out there and... i think michael Crichton could create a better visual than maybe anybody because when mm-hmm. i think back on his books i think about it like theatrically you know what i mean not like yeah remembering the words but like seeing the action in my head when they're running through the um uh the big uh the big fortress and there's cannonballs blowing stuff up left and right yeah yeah i think that's probably why a lot of his movies have uh, books have become movies because it is. It's like they're all like, I mean, Jurassic Park and all that stuff. They're very theatrical, you know what I mean? And some writers are like that. Some writers, they do like excessive exposition or some writers can paint a picture in your head. And uh, that's kind of what I strive to be as a uh, a painter. You know what I mean? Like I like to people to be able to visualize. And a lot of people say like when they read, you know, scratches, like you definitely get that picture in your head. You can see what's going on. Um, and you know, you're letting them, you're, you're giving them the opportunity to visualize it. You're not necessarily telling them everything that's happening, but you put them in that place and they can, you know, paint that picture in their head themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you do it right, reader, it's a know? dance between the, the writer and the reader. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So your actual process, when you sit down, we'll take a look at the, the nano process. Like when you're writing a story, what, uh, what does your day of writing look like? Well, I... You said you start usually around like 7, a little after 7. Yeah. And then uh, from that point, is it just you on a computer, you with a pen, you with a pencil? Do you just bang it out from the time you start till you can't stop anymore? Do you take breaks and get a snack? What do you do? I used to actually sit downstairs either at the dining room table or in the living room and write. And that's how I wrote my first two books. And then I kind of... It, it was, you know, my back started hurting. I noticed I wasn't very productive because I was getting distracted by this and that. And so mm-hmm. I ended up moving up to the office where we have my PC, which we have like this really old PC I had from school. And, but I have a laptop that I write on. And uh, so I could like take it places if I need to or whatever. I wanted it to be like, you know, small. Yeah. So I now sit up at the office. I turn on some light. Like I have like some LED lights. I, I have candles and, and incense and stuff. I like the light. I put the lights down low and I just start writing. If I have a project already going, I'll, I'll step into that. Like with my collection, I had to kind of go back and reread stuff um, and kind of do some, some of that. But usually like 7 PM, I try to lock the door because my kid will keep trying to come in my older <laughs> son. Um, and usually by 7 15, um, I'm in the groove. I'm doing it. I usually have a cup of tea I just recently quit. I was drinking a lot and I, I kind of just uh, quit drinking at home. So now I'll like have like a coffee or a tea or something. Yeah. Um, and 
yeah, then I'll just go from there and I'll put on music, usually like Spotify or like a, like some sort of uh, soundtrack from a movie. Like like when I wrote Scratches, I was listening to a lot of Ghost and a lot of Typo Negative. Um, mm. With Severed, I was listening to a lot of like, you know, Vietnam era, like 60s music. Um, and, and music's always a big part of my writing. Um, there's several songs mentioned in Scratches. There's several songs mentioned in Severed. Um, and a lot of those are songs that I was listening to at the time, or they have like a, they, they fit into the narrative somehow. Um, so yeah, I'm always listening to some sort of music and I like a lot of ambient stuff too, like John Carpenter soundtracks, yeah. um, the, like the witch or the lighthouse. Those are good soundtracks. I put on a lot of Skyrim. Yeah. Yeah. And it all depends on what I'm like, if I was writing like fantasy or something epic, you know, Skyrim or Lord of the Rings or something like that. I was listening to Lord of the Rings that. before I got you on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it all depends on um, the mood I'm trying to set. And I've always been like that. I've always been like, if I'm feeling depressed that night, I'll, I'll listen to this like depressing music or if I'm feeling like sometimes I just get that burst of energy and I'll put on like, you know, some like energized music, like you know, so it all depends on on that but that's basically my process sometimes i'll sit there for a couple hours sometimes i'll sit down and i'm like looking through my phone doing all kinds of things and i'm like yeah this isn't going anywhere i'll just i, I won't force it i'll just step away are you and a then, plotter um, storyboard kind of guy or are you a right to find it kind of guy i just yeah i'm a pantser uh, i just write it and when it comes to me sometimes like i'll leave a story behind Cause I can't think of how it's going to end. And then like, I'll be sitting there playing PlayStation or something, reading a book. And I'm like, Oh, that's it. That's what, that's where we're going to go with it. And then I'll remember it. And then I'll just write it into the story. I do. I do that a lot while I'm reading where I'll be reading something. I'll be having a great time reading. And then all of a sudden I get an idea for my story and I just can't move forward with the book. Okay. I got to go. Right. Cause it all starts coming to you. Like, and that's what happened with, scratches was i was writing i was actually staying up that's when i started staying up later because i used to go to bed really early and get up at like four in the morning um just naturally and then when i started writing i was like wow i'm like it's like 11 o'clock and i'm still awake you know and <laughs> i was pretty blown away and so yeah i ended up staying up later and then when i'd lay down to go to bed my brain was just like firing you know and uh different ideas kept coming to me and that's why like scratches ended up being longer even though people say they wish it was even longer um it's much longer than i had originally intended hmm. um you know and if i had been more patient if i had known what i know today it could have been like longer but i think it's the story that needed to be told the way it needed to be told and you know it was it was my starting point and uh i mean i'm very lucky like it ended up being what it is today and people really liked it um but yeah, so I'd go to bed and like all these ideas would be coming to me and sometimes I'd write them down or I would just remember what was, you know, what I was going to do the next day. And uh, like people say, a lot of writing is when you're not actually sitting at the computer writing, you're actually like, or at the pad of paper, it's when you're like doing the dishes or taking a shower, ideas will come to you. And then, uh, then you got to put it into, you know, into your story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes just sitting there doing nothing is part of the process. And some that's when sometimes some of your best ideas come to you. Yeah. So I admire people that are able to like write down ideas and, and, and I do outline a little bit like with, with like scratches, I did an outline basically to say, 
okay, the main character, Connor, this is when he was born. This is how old he is now. This is what he does, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with Janet, because mm-hmm. your readers are very, they're going to notice when Janet was 28 at the beginning and now she's 32 and, you know, yeah. <laughs> two chapters later, because they're going to notice those things. And I learned that early on, like, and they'll put it in their review, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so I was very careful. And then Severed actually has like seven, eight, nine different characters that I had to work with, which was a big change for me. So I actually, uh, you know, for each of them, I, I uh, wrote like, cause it's a squad of Marines. I wrote where they were from, how old they were their Some of their interests that are going to fit into the story um what weapon they carried because people are going to know those things like some people were uh you know carrying an m16 some were carrying a m249 saw or M- m4s uh it was different in vietnam um yeah yeah and then so yeah they're all carrying different weapons so yeah that's the you know the extent of outlining that i do most of it just comes to me as i'm writing it and then you know revisions is really important because your first draft is just your your nuts and bolts, your beginning of the story. It's like telling your story on the campfire. And then, you know, when you go to your second, third, fourth drafts, you really tighten things up. You're able to, you know, make it a much better story. Um, And that's really important um, for anyone ever looking to get into it. Um, Your first draft is just that it's just a rough draft. It's just getting the story down. Um, But, but the real writing happens when you go back and you really do those revisions um and that's when some of your best work can come out yeah i feel like that's the more fun part and that's the more well i don't know not that it's not fun when you're writing but like i feel more pressure when i'm trying to just get the idea out than when i can go okay well you know what we can just cut this little part out shine this little part up and now we got a story but oh 100 it is it is funner too i think i agree because it's like you know it's it's i don't know it's I don't know. It's just, that's the fun part of writing is that's when you can really get creative. Cause it is kind of daunting when you're sitting there trying to put out the story and you're like, then Barbara said this and Joe said that, and then this and that, but then you can go back and read it and be like, okay, that looks really sloppy. Let me cut that out and rewrite it. And it's not like putting the whole story out, but you're just fine tuning those, you know, those pieces and, yeah. um, well, it's really the ands and those and just and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought was crazy was I found myself, um, you know, when I was getting kind of close to the end of revisions, which, you know, if a publisher actually takes this thing, one's got it right now. Um, I'll have to do more, I'm sure. But I found myself changing dialogues, you know, like attributing it from this character to that character. I'm like, oh, you know what? This needs to be said, but that sounds more like something this person would say. And, mm-hmm. you know, give it to that person instead which, you know, blew my mind the first couple of times where I was like, wait a minute, you can just copy and paste and drag and move this scene up here instead of down here. And then mm-hmm. you kind of start to see where, uh, where the, the magic is gonna, gonna be in the finished product, because man, I don't know about you, but before I got really into writing, I used to like write, but you know, I'd write something and go, oh, well, this is terrible. And then just throw it away right away. I didn't really understand the whole process behind it. And so when I would read, um, Let's see. Stephen King, Kurt Vonnegut are probably the two writers I got into the most as an adult. When you read something like that, without having the uh, background of how they do it, you're just like these people are fucking magicians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is yeah. this is 
this is insane. How do people even do this? Which is why I'm glad we get to talk about it. Yeah, and it's that's the other thing too is the reason it's so important to read so much is because you're you're not just reading a story and being like, cool, that was a good story. You're learning those techniques, like how do they do effective dialogue? How do they, you know, like when something interrupts a conversation, like how do they handle that? Do they just say, oh, and they're not, you know, like there's techniques you can pick up and you're not necessarily like plagiarizing something, but you're learning how the masters of the craft pull these things off. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's why it is so important to read. Like I've re recently been branching out, um, reading a little nonfiction, reading some, I'm trying to, I'm, I got a couple Westerns coming in, mm. uh, trying to read. I, I, I used to read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. Like I read the Lord of the Rings and all that. I've read some Arthur C. Clarke. Um, because they're all very different and you can, and the good thing about horror is it's so it's an, it's almost like inclusive where you can pull in, like there's always a little bit of romance. There's always a little bit of like science fictiony things. Like yeah. it's kind of like one of those genres that you can borrow from all the other genres and, or even move it completely into another genre, horror right. Westerns. Exactly. Like, uh, King does that, and that was one of the things that really inspired me was the Dark Tower series is how, like, brilliant he uses, like, all these different genres, and he has romance, fantasy, science fiction, uh, classic literature, like, and he borrows from all these different things, and he'll literally tell you, like, like with uh, Wolves of Kala, he's like, oh, this is a retelling of the Seven Samurais or whatever that story was, um, and he, but he does it in such a way that it's his own thing, Mm -hmm. But he doesn't shy away from where his like Salem's Lot. This is his retelling of you know Dracula in a small town, like just things like that. It's it's really cool. And and, and the structure on that one I think blows me away more than any of them because you know he can horrify people with the the, the words and the images that he uses. But that book just like it keeps you on the edge of your seat. Like when am I going to see the goddamn vampire? Right. <laughs> and he doesn't yeah, give I it mean, to you. He doesn't give it to you for a long time. Yeah, it's just a great. And that's the thing, like, you know, people, I saw someone wrote on a, on a page, I think it was the Horror Writers Association Facebook page, like, does your story have to have gore to be considered horror? And people were like, blasting them, like, bah, 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 you know, going in it, and they all had their opinions. But it's funny, because so many people associate like horror with gore and monsters and things like that. But sometimes horror is just a car crash, or the loss of a child, or the loss of your pet, or uh a home fire like anything can be considered horror if, if it's done right and uh some of the scariest things to me is like how somebody is affected by something it's not necessarily like oh they see this monster and it's a scary monster it's like like what is that person thinking when they see that monster is what really fascinates me like yeah. they're worried about like like today i was driving home from dropping my kids off at daycare and this big old truck was driving in the other lane coming towards me and a little squirrel ran in front of it. And I was like, Oh man, I don't want to see this. And I noticed the squirrel made it. Okay. It was, it ran under the truck. And then I noticed when it was running back, it was kind of doing like a weird little hop thing instead of just running. Yeah. My mind was playing games and saying like, what if it's little paw was broken and crushed under the tire and now it's going into the woods to like, and, and, that's part of my anxiety, like, like things that I think of on my own, but that the thought of that, like little animals sitting in the woods, like terrifies me, like to think 
like how like what it's thinking about it's worried like its hand is damaged and it's not going to survive a couple days you know what i mean and that's the type of things that really scare me and more so than like but like you said like the idea of this vampire that you never see like half the book you know what i mean and you're only hinted at it yeah it's the lack of people oh this guy's gone now these people are gone now this yeah. whole block is gone now, where is everybody it's like the, the the idea of what people are thinking about it is what really is what's terrifying and that's yeah. that's where horror can be really effective because uh like scratches doesn't even really have a ton of blood or gore you know there's a little description in there but it's mostly just dread and it's like this overwhelming sense of like something is going to happen but we don't know what's going to happen and it you know uh so yeah it's i like that kind of kind of horror and i i think it's way more effective um than like i'm not i'm not a huge fan i don't i don't talk bad about it but like extreme horror where it's like you know the in-depth descriptions of of injuries and like this is what you and know torture ripped and, off the yeah. arm yeah and the blood was squirting out and then he slowly cut his cheek and and pulled the skin like that type of stuff i mean it this viking method of torture is not only painful but it takes 12 hours to die like yeah okay. yeah yeah and i mean that it, it's not really effective to me in the sense that it, it does gross me out but the the type of horror i really enjoy is like like psychological and like that that long sense that feeling of dread and like like you know like that's why i think some of the early king is just so effective like with pet cemetery like we all know what's going to happen um <laughs> you know we we've we've seen the movie and all these different things but the idea of when is it going to happen and what's it going to look like uh some of that is like the and that's why a lot of horror doesn't have like the climax until the very end because they're building up that anticipation you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Definitely. Kind of that old, uh, some extent, almost like, uh, the old Greek theater, they would have, they would always have like the, the big terrible scene would be just off stage and you would hear it, but you wouldn't see it. And somehow yeah. not seeing it is almost worse. Cause you can, you can make it as bad as you want to in your own head. You know, you don't need somebody saying, and then you could see his blood and his bones were up. Like you can make all the, gross juicy explody sounds in your head (laughs) yeah exactly you gotta trust your readers to have their own imagination and i think i think a readers can appreciate that because they you know they have if if they're reading your book they they obviously have this sense of wonder and stuff and and to trust that they're going to be able to fill in the blanks for you is a is a good a good thing to practice as a writer and it's hard because you want to be like oh i want them to to know i have this idea and all these things happening but sometimes it's way more effective to just step back and say okay this is going on in the side but i'm not going to describe to you what's going on i want you to do it yourself you know what i mean and um yeah i like when i like when stuff like that happens you know i think it's uh very effective yeah and it's better than like mm-hmm. when i started trying to get serious about writing and was taking some writing classes on the gi bill woo-hoo, um uh, <laughs> I would write something like, you know, somebody said, I'll get you, end quote. They cried while their face was all smushed together and one eye was open a little wider than the other and the tears were streaming unevenly out of one eye more so than the other. Like, and you just start adding all this description like, there, they'll see that. Like, well, yeah, they'll see that, but they'll be bored as hell and they'll stop reading by the time they get to the end. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's like a gory exposition. It's like just telling them what's going on and what it looks like. And, and that's why, like, 
when I read uh, on writing, he does mention like, um, you don't need to go into like extreme details about what someone looks like or their hairstyle or what they're wearing for clothes because you know the writers the readers going to be able to do that all themselves that's why sometimes when they adapt like a popular novel into a movie and and people are like no that's not who i pictured for that role at all you know yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh it, it's kind of like one of those things like you disappoint people when you give too much because they already put like they already have that person painted in their head um, yeah. and telling them too much of what this person looks like or whatever kind of ruins it for them in a way. Um, yeah. Cause Tom they, Hanks you know, has ruined a lot of movies uh, that way. Not, <laughs> not with bad acting. He's a fantastic actor, but uh, he doesn't look anything like Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump in the book, was a defensive end who was like six four two seventy, And they were like, <laughs> well, let's just have Tom Hanks lose weight and we'll make him a kick returner instead. <laughs> Yeah, I actually have that. I found that book at uh, Goodwill uh, last year. I'm kind of excited to read it because I've heard, I watched a show on it, like how the movie was made and they're like, oh, it's a terrible novel. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but the story was so interesting and there was so much you could do. Like, I, I think he like goes to space or something, doesn't he? Or... He tries to go to space. He tries to go... <laughs> he's, the, he's the, because he's still like a, a savant in the book. Yeah. So he was the backup for the NASA's onboard computer, but the they didn't go into space and then they crash landed on a cannibal island. <laughs> so uh, yeah i'm pretty excited to read that one but yeah that's that's exactly what happens like uh you know and especially because stephen king's books are so well loved like whenever there's like an adaptation or something people always complain about how someone looks like like wendy and the shining she was like this gorgeous blonde-haired woman um you know and then the movie you get like uh shelly duvall and I'm not saying anything bad about Shelley Duvall, but the character itself was so far away from the strong, you know, uh, the woman from The Shining. She was very like, you know, she was yeah. brave. She fought back. And then the movie, you get her and she's just like this whimpering, mm -hmm. just you know, scared of have everything. You heard, and, I'm guessing you have. Have you heard Stephen King talk about that movie and Stanley Kubrick and that whole thing? Yeah, I know he's very... He doesn't like it. it at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you hear what Stanley Kubrick did in the movie? So the uh in the book and in the movie, they both jacks drive a Volkswagen, um, mm -hmm. Volkswagen bug. But in the movie, and one of these is wrong. So if I get it wrong, then forgive me. But one of them's blue in the book and one's yellow in the movie, let's say. But um he comes past in the movie, he goes past a a a, a car wreck. And the car yeah. that's wrecked is the car that's described in the book. And that was Stanley Kubrick being like, screw you, Stephen King. Yeah, it was uh, it was red and yellow and Dick Halloran there you sees go. it crashed on the side of the road. Yep. And, uh, and there's so many things that I think were more effective in the book. Like when Wendy is uh, like, for instance, he's chasing everyone around with an axe in the movie. Mm. But in the book, he has a croquet mallet, which is that's like, right. I mean, that's like that's terrifying. Like this dude's going to bludgeon me to death. Whereas like an axe, yeah. you know, will take a limb off or something. But, and then like Wendy, when she's in the bathroom, she has like this big butcher knife thing. That's like, you know, but in the book, it's like razor blades that she finds in the friggin' the mirror. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, that yeah. to me is like way more cringe inducing. Like thinking of like slicing someone's fingers with a sharp razor blade is way more effective than the, you know, the slasher, you know every day and that's why i think king was so brilliant and 
And not only that, like Jack, the fact that Jack was a maniac from the very first scene in the movie, whereas, uh, I mean, he has alcohol problems in the book, but he, it, it's the and hotel. it's so much more in-depth, too. You know what I mean? Like the, Yeah, yeah. You have much more a sense of the character, who he is, the good, the bad, like, find out that yeah. he, what was it, he had a, a busted grill and he barely remembered hitting something and feeling a bump under the car and hoping that it wasn't a kid. Like, yeah. those are all things that don't make it into the movie where you're just like, God, yeah, and like seeing his mother like get abused by their father and stuff like that. Uh, all those things are way more character. And that's why, I mean, I understand people, why people like the Kubrick movie, but... I think it's a great standalone just, movie, but not, yeah. not representative of the book, even a no. little bit. No. Outside so, of the names uh, and just like maybe the first couple of minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, I mean, and that's I think that's what happens a lot with movies and and books, and you know, you you people are so like invested in these stories that when you try to adapt it, and they do their own thing and go completely, you know, like that happened with like the Miss TV show, like it was some completely different thing that they did away from the book. It's like, why even bother? Why not just write your own yeah. story or your own movie rather than butcher these, you know, <laughs> these uh, adaptations? Well. So. I think it was, I think it was Jen that told me this. Jennifer Susie, she's a also a horror writer. I don't know if you've read any yeah. of her stuff. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> um, she was telling me, I think in one of the times she was on the show, that um, William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist, was also mm-hmm. then hired to write the screenplay. And then when somebody asked him later, they're like, "Hey, the the screenplay was so much like the movie. How'd you get away with that?" He's like, "Oh, I've never done one before. I just thought that's what you did." And the movie ended up being <laughs> huge, and it was you know according to jen i haven't read the exorcist um she said that it's very faithful almost down to like scene for scene what happens in the book and that's why you know everyone regards yeah. it as one of the best horror movies ever because it didn't stray it didn't try to do its own thing the director didn't get a wild hair and go i'm gonna tell my own story right it is it is uh, i just read it uh i have a the hardcover um actually but i did buy the audiobook because he actually Vladdy actually narrates it and uh, he does an amazing job. Oh, does he? I was um, going to say it, that can be good yeah. or bad, man. I got an English lit degree and I had to listen to a lot of authors read their own stuff and mm-hmm. it can be hit or miss, like big miss. <laughs> yeah, he nails it. He um, he knows all the emotions that people are dealing with. He does the voice of uh, Pazuzu, like the, the demon guy. Oh, really? really he well. gets all like into yeah. character and does it? That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm surprised the guy wasn't like an actor or something because, uh, and maybe he was, I don't know, but he um, he does an awesome job. And yeah, there was another movie. Um, I was, I watched, I read the book and then I was watching the movie and I'm trying to remember what it was, but there was a few scenes that were like, oh, Salem's Lot. So the movie is pretty different than the book. I haven't seen the movie. But I have read the book. The, it, it was actually a miniseries, um, I think back oh, in like the 70s i wish they did 80s. more of those man yeah. those miniseries were great the stand was fantastic yeah well they could they could really stretch it out and be more faithful but there yeah. was some scenes like that were like almost word for word and i was really impressed by that um like yeah you can actually like read from the book into the thing and i think they were more um careful about that early on until and i think king for most of those miniseries had if not like screenplay credits you know was like an executive producer who could be like no don't do that (laughs) yeah yeah and he um yeah so i think that's like you said when they actually 
put faith in the source material and they're not trying to do their own thing. Uh, that's when stories are like are really good. Movies are awesome. And, and uh, even like the Stan miniseries, that was pretty damn faithful to the book, even though the book is massive. Um, and that's why I think it is going to be one of those things that you'll never truly see a good adaptation for it because it's so complex. It's so layered. Yeah. That one's about 900 pages, story. right? Yeah. I think my, I think my hardcover is actually over a thousand. I think it's like 1100 pages. It's um, another doorstep. Yeah. And then the stand is the same way. Like I have the uncut. That one's like 1300 one pages, isn't it? The un uncut one. The uncut one is like really long and I can see why they cut a lot of it out, but I'm glad I read it because yeah, some of the because some of the that's his original forced vision, yet know? pleasurable sex scenes that involve a two men and a gun. Like yeah, exactly. Have anything to do with the story? I mean, it gives you more insight into the character, but yeah, I mean, it didn't yeah, need to be there. Uh, kid and trash can man. That's one of the scenes that I actually always specifically referenced because it was just <laughs> like I could see why they cut this, but at the same time, you know, that was King's vision, and sometimes he's what, a you know, hardcore what, dude, man. Oh, that's some yeah. hardcore stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> For people that um, don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about using a gun to sodomize somebody. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was not in the, in the like, the original publishing. Um, and I think they, they left it out of like the stand uh, miniseries, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. That, I, I, that's why I think sometimes, you know, when people say, oh, the book was better, um, they mean it. And it's true. Because <laughs> yeah. it is. And they're well, not just being snooty and saying, oh, I read the book, you know, but... Yeah, no, one of the things in the stand specifically that I loved was um, while everything is going to hell, he just gives you like snapshots of random people like that aren't even getting sick. Like, oh, so-and-so was a, a a cokehead and was going door to door and got shot in the face or whatever it was like, you know, just little things of that they couldn't show in the movie because, you know, you kind of got to at least hopefully have at least one main character or somebody that's going to directly affect a main character in every shot. But yeah. Yeah, seeing the whole world fall apart one person's view at a time was creepy. Yeah, same thing with it, and I think that's why it's such a a well loved book is because it's not just the story of these kids and and this this entity and and whatever. The dairy is a very much a, a character in the book, and you he you see stories of like, you know the, uh, you know you got the gang. Um, what was their name? The Bradley gang. Um, you got that whole section of story. You got like. Uh, the young boy that went missing and it's like told, I think it's told in like newspaper articles and, and police reports about how his, his stepfather was abusive. And so they just assumed like he killed him and, and did away with his body or something. And um, it really adds to the sense of dread and the, the terror that this town is dealing with and how their, their way of dealing with it is just saying is finding these excuses, even though pretty much all of them know that there's obviously this thing that's been happening for thousands, hundreds and probably thousands of years or however long it happened in Derry. Um, Cause I mean, the origin of Pennywise was like millions of years ago, but it, when he woke up eventually was when settlers and stuff started coming to Derry. That aspect of it is like my favorite, like the, the whole, the mother in the well and, and all these different things that happened. And that to me is like, I love that kind of stuff. And the fact yeah. that he, they, they didn't put it in, in the, uh, the movies, but that was one thing I loved about the original miniseries is Mike hints at it a lot when he talks about like, you know, the uh, 
the factory blowing up and and killing all those people and and in the vision in like the pictures you can see the dancing clown in the background of those of those pictures and stuff to me that just it gets sense gives me chills and i yeah. love that that type of storytelling when people are able to pull that off yeah um and it's fun to see callbacks and other stories too i can't remember if it was yeah one of the i don't know if it was in a one of the dark tower books one of the other i can't remember but just you know they're like going through dairy and they see somebody like spray painted pennywise lives and you just that's all it says about mm -hmm. it but you're just like, I think oh, that was anyways. Dreamcatcher, actually. Dreamcatcher. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yep. that's then, the one that um, starts out. No, that's it where it starts out. They get save that kid who's getting beat up. Nope, that's Dreamcatcher. No, yeah, that's, well, there's, yeah, that's Dreamcatcher. That's uh, Duddits. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The kid that has, like, the shine, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then in Tommy Knockers, I, I haven't read it yet, but I know he sees uh, a clown in the sewer drain. And then... Um, in like 11, 22, 63, there's a scene where he goes back to Derry and he actually sees Richie and Beverly down in the Barrens working on like a dance routine. Um, I, I love that kind of stuff. Like, and I actually try to include stuff like that in my work, um, like callbacks, um, different characters will be repeated in different stories. And it's not like, it's kind of like how King does it. He just puts them there. And, and if you know, you know, if you don't know, you'll never catch on. When you it. know, you're like, Hey, yeah, exactly. And I, I appreciate that so much in his work um, that I, it's kind of like this natural thing. Like I, I have to do it. I want to do it and add these people in places in my stories. Um, and uh, I think it's fun. I think, you know, the more stuff I get, the more like books I put out, and more people read it, they'll start to catch on to those things and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I love that type of storytelling and it, it uh, it's so fun. That's why I, I love like the dark tower. Um, any sort of little reference I get from, you know, a King story or something. Uh, I'll always be like, Oh man, I'll have to tell my wife. And she's like, Oh, that's cool. Whatever. I don't right. care. <laughs> Maybe I'm a huge dork for not getting it, but one of the hard case books that he wrote, uh, what is it? The Colorado Kid. Did you, did yeah, you ever Colorado Kid? Did you read Joy that Land? one? Yeah, Joyland was. Great. I haven't read any of those ones yet. To be honest, the hard, oh. hard crime ones. I was gonna ask you if you if you thought you solved it because I thought that I solved it, and it had to do with the Dark Tower, but mm -hmm. like I've tried looking online and like no one place definitively says, "Oh, this is what happened." But King's like, I mean, all the all the clues are there, but he won't just tell people what the <laughs> what the answer yeah. is. Yeah. I'll have to because uh like I like um Edward Edward Lorne um E. He does a series on his YouTube channel and basically he like every couple weeks, it's usually it used to be every Thursday or so, he would do a different King book and tell you how it's connected to the Dark Tower series. And it yeah. was really fun because you know there's there's a lot of things like certain characters, like I feel like Ellie from Pet Cemetery has the shine because she has like these premonitions, these dreams about like Pascal and something happening to her mom and her dad and the cat. And she's always like, Hey dad, is the cat okay? Cause uh, I had a dream that something bad happened to him. And like, and it, there's all these little hints so early on in his career that it just blows your mind. Like how brilliant this is because no other writer that I know of is able to do stuff like that or pull that off. And, 
and there's even like maps that people have made of like the king universe and the multiverse that he's created and it's so far off from like anything else anyone has ever pulled off and he just it, it you know i appreciate it a lot because yeah i'm that type of guy that like i'll read a book and then i'll like youtube videos on it and theories and different <laughs> yeah. characters and my wife's yeah, like deep down the hole man yeah my wife will read a book and she'll be like I forgot the characters' names and, and stuff. And we're so different. Like, I'm like, I got to look up everything. Is there a movie? Is there this? And it's so funny. Like, I do. I go right down that rabbit hole and I love it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with every single book I read. <laughs> yeah. One last thing I'll say about Stephen King. When I was in school, I was a terrible student, hated school. ADD just kind of like ruined it for me and my teachers. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more for my teachers, part for people. Um, <laughs> but then when I was in the military, I went to a school after boot camp in, um, oh, what's the name of that city in Florida? Anyway, on the Gulf Coast side, up uh, in the Panhandle. <clears throat> and Hurricane Ivan hit and just wrecked everything. So all I had was an acoustic guitar, um, some cigarettes, and not much else. And we were out of no electricity, no running water even, for a couple of weeks. And I was losing my mind on like the second or third day. And somebody's like, oh, I brought a backpack full of Stephen King books. And I already read a couple of them. I'll just give you one after I'm done reading it. And you, so I was like, okay. And then I read, <laughs> he gave me the dead zone first. I read the dead zone in one afternoon and then was like, Hey, can I get another one? He's like, uh, I guess I'll just start giving them to you before I read them. And I read, I think maybe six of his books in, in a week. Um, and then we started finally moving around and having things to do again. But then after that, I started just devouring Kurt Vonnegut and, uh, yeah, if it hadn't been for Stephen King, though, and a million people say this, but he's just that good, I guess. If it hadn't been for him and then uh, also natural disasters, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'd be where I am now talking to you. So mm -hmm. I'll hail Stephen oh, yeah. King. 100%. A lot of people uh, say that, especially like people in our generation. You know, my first, I grew up and I'm a Mainer. All I heard about my Can't whole life. not hear was, him. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I have friends that when they were in school they used to write letters to him and then they'd come he'd come visit them at their school and they have pictures uh -huh. of him with with king and and uh signing their books and uh just amazing things like that and and from like i mean that was like the mid 80s when he first started really taking off mm -hmm. um so you know you just you uh can't help but you know appreciate the guy and his talent and uh just the fact that he's such a good person and you know he's very charitable and uh sticks to his roots i mean he still lives in maine most of the time um not in his big mansion anymore but uh you know he lives out in western maine now kind of in the sticks yeah i heard he still owns that place is he going to turn it into like a museum or something or just yeah i've heard it's like like an archival type thing but also like a writer's retreat but also mm -hmm. like uh yeah like a museum type thing it's kind of kind of uh, hard to understand what it's all going to be but i try to go up there uh i try to go up there once or twice a year but obviously like there's nothing nothing much was going on this past year with the pandemic and everything but um i just like going up to bangor and, and checking out some of the bookstores and stuff like that um it's a nice place to visit so kind of inspirational and uh but yeah all hail the king Psy king <laughs> I would ask you why horror, but it sounds like we talked about Stephen King a lot. That's that's probably a big one. Besides Stephen King, um, who do you cite as being influential to you, surprising or not, depending on you know what kind of stuff they write? I probably would go with um, 
Richard Chismar, even though he's like a real kind of a recent like writer, been getting like real big nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. I love his work. Um, Matheson, I like his work. Oh yeah. Uh, Brian Jakes, um, the uh, Redwall series. You know, it's like a middle grade young adult type series um, with like animals that like are at war with each other all the time. It's like fantasy, really good writer. I love those books. They're fun. Um, you know, Tolkien, you know, all the big ones. Like I said, I used to have a hard time focusing on books. So I wouldn't really, I was obsessed with books like my whole life, but I never had like the like attention span to sit there and read a ton of books at a time. So yeah, yeah. I'm kind of just like recently getting to the point where I'm reading a lot and finally branching out to all these books that I've so far behind on um, Barker, uh, John Saul. Those are a couple other ones I like. And then I've also been really getting into a lot of indie indie horror the past two years because um, that whole indie horror scene is just, you know, that I happen to be a part of now is is really amazing. And it's- uh, You ever read that hack awesome Brandon Scott? <laughs> I have. Yeah, he. Uh, I actually just read um, Voodoo uh, a month or two ago. Oh um, yeah, his books so, are great, uh, man. I'm waiting for that third one uh, eagerly. Yeah, yeah. I guess it, there's like a can't come out for like a few years at least. So, but I do have a nice signed copy of uh, the second book, Slate, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm in an anthology with with him and a bunch of other authors uh, coming out later this year called Up from the Depths, which. Uh, the great Ramsey Campbell is actually writing the forward for that one. So I'm, I'm pretty uh, psyched about that. Um, How do you feel about short stories versus like novellas, novels, you know, something where you're like, I can wrap this up in well under 50 pages versus like, I need some time for this. Do you approach it differently or is it all the same thing? Just less time. Well, uh, I'm not, I'm not that prolific yet. I've, I've got a couple of novellas under my belt. Um, you know, Severed was my longer book, which once it was formatted, it was actually much shorter than it, I was expecting. But um, even as far as like writing or, or reading, you know, like just when I write- writing, I don't know if you get into a different kind of mindset or if like with a short story, mm. if you kind of have more of a fully formed idea going in. Yeah. I mean, short stories, they're, they're, it's almost the same. Like with a short story, uh, I'll kind of have this basic idea of what like the, the whole story is going to be about, but I won't necessarily have like the middle or end. It'll just kind of come to me as I'm writing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like with my with my two novellas I wrote, I you know I wrote them on the spot. Whereas this, I, my next project I'm I'm shooting for once I get my edits back from my two projects that are going. I, uh, I'm planning a horror Western, which I came up with a pitch like on the spot, um, for, uh, death said press was doing a, um, pitch like open pitch thing where we're like, Hey, we want to start our next like season of like horror splatter punks, which I'm not really a big splatter punk guy anyway, but I was like, Hey, I'd love to do a horror Western. That sounds fun. So I mm-hmm. came up with a pitch on the spot and, uh, sent it in and never heard back. I'm not sure if they're, if they're done picking their books and stuff or whatever, but I was like, you know what? I, there's no reason why I can't still write this thing. And um, it's been like, you know, it's, I'm so anxious to write it. I've been like doing research and reading. Um, I'm trying to get into like more Westerns. I just picked up a Larry McCurdy book. Uh, 
and I've been watching some of the old like Clint Eastwood movies um, and just getting really excited. And this one, I might, this is, I'm shooting for a full length novel and I'm actually considering doing some plotting and outlining um, cause I'm, I'm hoping this thing is going to be, you know, pretty expansive. Um, so that compared to my other stories where, you know, I sit down and I write them and they, they are what they are. Um, I can already feel myself growing as a writer because I'm not just instantly sitting down and jumping into something and doing it. I'm letting it simmer and letting it, you know, build up in my head before I actually want to sit down and write it. Um, which I think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, this book took me five years to write or, you know, <laughs> 10 years to write even. Um, that that amazes me because I'm such a, like, a lot of it has to do with my anxiety because I'm like, once I get an idea out there, I start talking about it with everybody. And then I'm like, all right, I need to get this thing out there. Um, <laughs> the first book that I wrote, I was literally, especially because of the content too, I was like, I can't die before I finish this. <laughs> <laughs> like my motivation to keep going yeah exactly it's like i have to get this done i have to get it published i have to do this like start promoting it immediately and uh you know that could be a good or bad thing you know because like with severed i was telling people all oh, this will be out by december and i'm really excited about it and then you know i didn't i didn't put it out until february and originally i was like i'm gonna put this out on my birthday february 17th is the release date and then i got <laughs> I got the formatting done. Uh, Ross Jeffrey, my buddy there, did the formatting for me. And it needed a few more like passes of editing, but I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm releasing this thing tomorrow. <laughs> and like, I just, I published it on uh, KDP, self-published and put it out there. And then immediately I was like anxiety ridden. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I, did I even rip, finish writing that scene? Like there was certain things I didn't even remember if I was like, did I actually finish that? Was oh man, I can't believe I did that. And um, <laughs> I printed out like 130 copies to sell signed copies, and uh, sold them all. Nice, because I had read something that like only five percent of um, independent authors will sell more than 100 copies of their book. Yeah, well, this one like sold like hotcakes. Like I was only going to print 50, like to sign and sell. But then I kept getting messages, and and every time I've had author copies. Uh, they always sell out like people like I'll, I'll put a little note out there. Hey, if anyone wants a signed copy, hit me up. And I end up having to either print more or I have to turn people down because I'm like, I only had like 10 copies. Um, first world problems, first, man. Yeah. Yeah. And that <laughs> first printing was a hot mess. And I was like, I got to apologize. Like I, I put that out really fast. Um, if you know, bear with me. And then I did a, another pass through and put out like a second edition. And, and now I feel like both, or where they're going to be as tight as they're going to be. Um, and I am planning a third book eventually, but that's going to take yeah. place. I'm going to start writing that after. Um, I think this, this Western is kind of like really chomping at the bit to get out here. And and mm -hmm. so I'm like, I, I think I'm going to start that and make, make people wait for that third book. Um, Nothing and, wrong with that. You know, let it stew a bit. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. A lot of, a lot of stuff coming down the works here, coming down the pipeline. Well, you've talked about promoting a little bit, and I've already said I wanted to talk about it. So let's segue into promoting yourself. You seem like you're a pretty crafty guy with the social media. You put out good posts, mm -hmm. put out regular stuff. You get some interaction. Um, what uh, what advice, you know, since we're just talking here, what advice do you have for a guy like me who's got a book that 
I'm hoping whether it gets picked up by a publisher or not to set it like beginning of summer because that's where it takes place anyway for next mm-hmm. year. Um, what what are your social media do's, don'ts, and uh, uh, I don't know, maybe <laughs> just, you know, basic starter kit for like how to promote yourself as a new author? I um, I talk a lot about my writing. I kind of hint at what I'm working at um, early on. I, you know, I'll say like, uh, you know, I've been saying I have a collection coming out this fall for quite a while because originally I was planning on self-publishing and that was always my deadline was the fall. So I've been talking about it for a while and uh, you kind of build up this hype. Eventually you do a cover reveal. Cover art is very important. That's something that can really attract people. And um, yeah, speaking of which, there's so many people, especially if you put out on your Instagram, I'm a big Instagram guy, that you're an mm-hmm. author, people will friend you and send you like, hey, if you're looking for, I've seen so many different book covers. Did you have a process for like picking somebody or did you just like see somebody's social media and go, wow, they got a lot of good stuff. I'll try them or. No, that's exactly what happened with, uh, like I said, with scratches, I was so new to everything. I had no clue what I was doing. And I went, I was like, you know what, I'm going to need a book cover. And I'm like sitting down, I'm like, I want to draw something. And I'm like, no, I'm not like, what are you doing? (laughs) And I actually went on to Instagram that day. And I just so happened to get a sponsored ad for Dave Dick, who is the the artist that did my two covers. And he'll be doing um, the third book as well. And then eventually I'm planning a special edition hardcover um, with all three books combined into one omnibus and He's gonna. I'm gonna have him do one special cover for that as well, which will be down down the road. Um, but yeah, no, I found his account and I'm like, I love that style. I think it's a great fit for my book. Um, and I messaged him and I'm like, Hey man, uh, I have this book coming out. Um, it's my debut, and I'm looking to do you do commission, you know, cover art. And he said, Yeah. And he said, This is my price, and this is what I do. And um, I ended up sending him the manuscript and had him read it. Um, and then with the second book, and I, I said, feel free to come up with a design all your own. And he came up with the uh, the staircase and the, the looming shadow. Mm. Um, and then yeah, with the second work. book, yeah, yeah. And that really pulled a lot of people in. They were like, I love this. It reminds me of like, you know. Yeah, you can tell people don't judge a book by a cover all day, but they'll do it. <laughs> yeah, they will. It's very it's very important. And, uh, and then the second book, I actually scribbled a little... Uh, drawing of what I wanted. I'm like, I'm not going to make you read my book, man. You're a busy guy. <laughs> and uh, so I scribbled a little picture of what I wanted. And I said, no, Dave Dickett, <laughs> like make it, make it your thing. And so he did. And I, I loved it. It was brilliant. Um, and that's pretty much what I did for that. And then for my collection, um, I had actually pre or uh, purchased a pre-made cover from uh, I think his name is Don Noble. Um and he does covers like you see them all over the place. They're really nice. Um, and they had like a sale one time and I got a cover for 50 bucks that looked awesome. And uh, that's when I came up with the title for my collection because they needed a title so they could put my name and then the, the title on the cover art yeah. before they sent it to me. And I just came up with a title on the spot, which ended up becoming my collection. But when I went through Crimson Creek Press, they actually went out of their way and they're like, I saw this awesome photographer. I really like his art and I'd like to talk to him about purchasing one of his pictures for your cover. And I'm like, hell yeah, you know? And so I 
trusted them completely and uh that's what the, the cover art for my uh, collection is but uh no so yeah i um you do cover reveals you another thing that is helpful is promoting other people's work and helping mm -hmm. them you know retweets are free uh yeah. things like that are free and people notice after a while like you know you're going out of your way to help them and um like today there was a couple book releases and uh, I just printed and say, hey, you know, happy release day to these guys, you know, good work. Um, and I've just been going out of my way to really put myself out there, support other people, because in, in you know, this is a, a hard, hard business to be in. Like you're, you're competing with all these other people, all these other books that are out there and everyone yeah. wants to read everything. And that's already hard, so like for time. me anyway, as a creative person to feel like I'm competing with other creative people. You don't want to feel yeah. that way, but I mean, like in the raw sense of it, somebody's got five bucks, they're going to buy your book or they're going to buy somebody else's book. Right, exactly. And I mean, that's exactly it. Like you, you, you don't want to feel like you're competing, but you're only competing in the sense that everybody is has finite time. Like you only mm -hmm. have a certain amount of time to do anything. And why should they take their time to buy your book and, and read it when there's so many other amazing books out there? And that's really what you have to do is you have to sell it that was a hard thing for me because I'm very, uh, I have very low self-esteem. I've always been that way my whole life, which is why I've always been like, yeah, I hate job interviews for that same reason. Yeah. It's like, why should we pick you over everybody else? I'm like, I yeah. honestly don't know if you should or not. <laughs> the idea of selling myself or having confidence in anything that I do terrifies me. And so <laughs> the idea of like selling my book and my, you know, especially as a debut writer, that was scary to me and it was very difficult, but it became easier when more people, when, when you start getting feedback and when people start telling you, I love it. I want the next one. I want to read everything. You have to take that to heart. Just like you take when someone says, I didn't like this book. I thought it was terrible. I take all that stuff to heart because that's someone that put their time into that work and it makes me want to get better. And even though, you know, as someone with low self-esteem, when someone says they like your work, there's a little voice inside you that wants to tell you like, oh, they're just saying that to be nice, but you have to take that to heart and say, they really like my work. I'm going to, now I have the confidence. And so you really got to just put yourself out there, promote other people in turn. They'll, you know, it's not always the case, but sometimes they'll help promote you or uh, they'll become interested in, in what you do. I'm very active because I mean, I'm a stay at home dad. I like to share what I'm reading, what I'm, watching for movies and i like to interact with a lot of people and uh i don't know I, th I think that's those are kind of like the big things is just people have to you have to be visible to people like and, and until you're at that point where you're like this you're this name you're this household name and everybody's just gonna automatically like stephen king like he doesn't have to promote anything because millions of people will do it for him you know what i mean and until <laughs> yeah. you get to that point um especially being my first books were self-published um, it was me against the world and I had to get people's eyes on my work. Um, and, you know, I've been fairly successful at doing that, like with my first book, um, even though it wasn't this perfect piece of literature, um, it, it drew, took, got people's attention, you know what I mean? And, and uh, that's really the biggest thing is you need people to know who you are, to know what you're about, to, to see what you're interested in. Cause a lot of that will come alive in your own work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and uh, I don't know, that's, that's kind of it. You, you just want to have a presence out there and don't be afraid to talk about your work and your books and what you're doing because uh, 
people like to know about that kind of stuff. They, they feel like they're a part of it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when I say, Oh, I just, I just finished this, you know, this chapter and it was an awesome scene and I can't wait for you all to read it. Like it gets people excited. They're like, when you're excited yeah. about your work, they're excited about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So those are, those are just some of the things that I feel like helped me a lot. And uh, I mean, every writer will tell you something different, but yeah, just be, just to have a presence out there and social media is great for that as awful as it is. And is, you know, as, as uh, much of a cesspool as, as uh, it can be out there. I've made a lot of good friends, a lot of author friends, yeah. people that are rooting for you. You know what I mean? And that's, that's, what's important. That's it's, yeah. Hey, you know, hey. There's hold nice on. I gotta have you hold that thought just one second. Cause I got to pee so bad. If you have to, too, then oh, go yeah. ahead. Ah, but I'll be I'm right back and then we'll wrap up in just a second. I promise. Sure. <laughs> I love what you're saying about, you know, I, I don't think you use this term, but same, same, uh, finding the win-win where you can promote yourself and somebody else. It seems like that's mm -hmm. the ultimate way to, you know, like make connections and make friends with people too. Um, but, you know, it's also like the the least obnoxious and narcissistic way to put yourself out there too is by just creating connections with people. Like with uh, Brandon and uh, Jen, who's been on the podcast now twice. Um and I think she said she's got your book, but she hasn't read it yet because I was trying to get somebody to do my homework for me. <laughs> They've already read your whole book. <laughs> as far as promoting things goes, it seems like the old way was like go to comic cons and book conventions and bookstores and libraries. Do you still do that or have plans to do that? Or have you pretty much figured out how to do it all, you know, through the through the screen? Well, I, uh, I had planned on doing like cons and stuff and, um, you know, but all that stuff can, can, it's kind of like an investment. Like I know a lot of those, a lot of times you have to pay money to get a table and all this stuff. You have to pay to fly there. There's not much of that stuff that goes on in, in Maine, believe it or not. It all depends on where, you know, where you're at financially, how much, you know, how much you can handle, but also for me, I went to Scares That Care and my original idea was, oh, I'm going to go to this. I'm going to take notes and get, you know, ideas. And then next year I'm going to go and, and I'm going to put my books out there and sell them. Well, I wasn't anticipating anxiety and the idea of being surrounded by people all the time for three days. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I went to the first, the first day of, of uh, Scares That Care and had a great time. And got to meet a lot of the author friends that I've been making, you know, and, uh, and then the next day I went for maybe an hour and a half, less than two hours. And I was really like getting that anxious. I was like, I just got to get out of here. I need to get, and I ended up hanging out in my hotel for like the next three days or two days. Um, got a lot of writing so, done yeah, probably. It's, yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those things like you, you anticipate it and you get all excited about it and then reality kicks in. And so for me, I'm doing what works best for me. And right now um, that's just kind of, you know, doing what I can through social media and building myself up. And, you know, I, I volunteer for a lot of things. Like I volunteered to be on the uh, street team for Richard Chismar's last latest book that just came out. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I was help promoting that. That's a way to get my name out there get people to know who I am, make connections, networking and, and connections. Did is, you do anything uh, like that? Like getting people together being like, Hey, will you post about this? Talk about this. And 
Well, what I did was my job was to really connect with podcasts and uh, and things like that, blogs, and say, hey, would you be interested in hosting Richard Chismar on your blog? Like I had, like I don't know, close to a hundred different things on like a on a table, and then you know you'd email all of them with like this template and say, hey, I'm representing Richard Chismar, and this is the book that he's coming out, and would you be interested? So I did all that, and. Uh, and so that was a great way to connect with people to, to, uh, you know, network and stuff like that. Um, anything you can do like that is a great, great way to get your name out there. And I, I've also feel like something that's been working for me is I, I'm a little more elusive than a lot of people. Like I see a lot of people getting into like every single anthology they can and getting into all these different things where I kind of hold myself back and build up the anticipation for that work. You mm -hmm. know, when you get one book out there and people love it and they want more, and then you start putting out a different story in every single anthology going forward. Yeah. It's almost like this, you know, over saturation of your work and it becomes less like exciting. You know what I mean? So for me, it's like, you know, instead of putting a story and, and submitting to every single anthology that I can, I make people wait a little bit and build up anticipation. And then now they're going to get this whole collection of all these stories I've been working on, or I'm in a couple of little anthologies that I was invited to write with um, that are a little lesser known. Um, Ooh, getting that invitations me, for work now. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It, it's it blows <laughs> after my all mind. The, like, after all the imagine. rejection that writers face to finally have somebody right. say, hey, will you do something? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, it almost is like, you know, who is this guy and where do you even come from? Like, why, you know, instead of being like, oh, I have a story in this one and the next, and it's kind of like you're, 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 you know, you're making yourself uh, less accessible, even though I'm very accessible. Like I'm always available. People can always reach out to me anytime they want. Um, I love getting feedback about stuff, but you know, um, I don't know. I, I feel like that's been a, a good thing for me. And that's the style I prefer to to have instead of like, you know, having a different project coming out every other month. You know what I mean? For podcasting and, and getting on podcasts, which is mm -hmm. a great way to get out there. You got on this podcast, thanks to that hack, Brandon Scott. No, I keep calling him that hack, Brandon Scott. I say that, <laughs> I say that with all the love out there, people, all the love, Brandon Scott. <laughs> um, but he reached out to me because a lot of times people say, hey, you should have so-and-so on your show. And I'm just like, were you on my show? No, then I don't care. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> guests of the show have privileges of saying hey you should have somebody on your show and i'll actually go okay um yeah and he just texted me and was like hey man you gotta have joshua marcel on your show i was like okay <laughs> checked you out yeah. a little bit and i was like yeah man sounds good seems like a seems like a guy who likes to talk which is good because some writers are just weird <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what i mean it's it's a solitary yeah. uh occupation or hobby or whatever so by nature it can <laughs> attract some people who are kind of antisocial. but yeah you don't seem that at all yeah, no. And I mean, it's, I love it because, you know, like I'm a stay at home dad and all I'm dealing with is my kids all day. And whenever I get a chance to chat about not only to chat with adults that are like-minded, but also to chat about things I love or things I'm interested in. Um, it's nice. You get to learn. Sometimes you learn about yourself. You learn about other people. You make relationships with people. And like with Brandon, he reached out to you for me you know what I mean? And maybe I'll reach out to someone for him or for you. You were just, you were too big of a fan and you were embarrassed to ask you on your own. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and, and sometimes I'll put it out there because I'm like, hey, if anyone wants to be have them on their podcast and people will reach out and they're real humble and they're like, hey, you know, I know you're really busy, but would you like to come on my show? And I'm like, absolutely. Why wouldn't I? You know, like it almost seems like because you have like a couple novellas out there, people are like, oh, this guy's way too big and I can't reach out to him. And I'm like, absolutely not. Like I always try to go out of my way to make people feel comfortable around me or, you know, to feel like they can, they can come chat with me. And that's why I'm always open about like, you know, mental health and things like that, because sometimes it, it, people do feel alienated because they feel like they're the only ones dealing with certain things or, you know, so I want people to know, like, you know, and that's one thing I've learned becoming an author. Uh, you see all these like big names and all these people getting published by these big publishers they're just like you and me. They're they're mm -hmm. feeding their kids dinner at night. They're, you know, they have to take a shower and, and do all these little mundane, they clean toilets, they live their life. And uh, they, they're no different. And that's what I want people to realize is, you know, when you have a dream and you can chase your dream and achieve your goals, um, you're still a person, you're still, you know, a normal guy. And, uh, you know, it's just that you've, you've put in the work and you're now going out there and, and showing people. I've had a few people actually, uh, cause I'm from a small town in Maine. Um, nobody really comes out of this town. You know, Glenn Rolfe is actually, you know, lives maybe five minutes from me. He's another horror writer who's been, huh. been in the game longer than I have. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it's people here, all oh, there's a, you know, especially like people I graduated high school where they knew me as the clown, as this joker, yeah. uh always getting in trouble with in school because i was just you know crazy and uh yeah i get i get a feeling you and i were not pegged as the guy that we're, <laughs> would grow up to write novels yeah and they're like wow you actually like write books that's amazing man i never would have imagined that and uh i'm like me neither you know but i <laughs> i tried it and i did it and that's where we're at now and i that's why i always encourage people same thing with like when i started playing music um People were like, oh, I'd love to play music or drums or guitar. And I'm like, well, then go do it. That's yeah. I didn't do it my whole life since I was three years old. I just picked it up one day. And 15 years later, I'm still playing and loving it. And I'm better at it. And anything you want to do, you just got to try to do it. You only live one life. And you can't be scared to take chances and to, to try new things. Um, because you'll, you'll never do it. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, not everybody's going to be this great. I mean, how many authors do you know that you know they're never going to be a Stephen King or a Dean Koontz but they're going to leave their imprint and they're going to have their books out there and they're always going to have that something that they accomplished even if it's one book or one short story or whatever it's always going to be there and they can say I did it and I, I did that thing that I set out to do and you know it's it's inspiring and that's why you know I I'm always blown away when you, you write a review or something for an author and like, you know, Brian Keene or Richard Chismar and they'll message you and say, thank you for doing that. You know, thank you for promoting my book or thank you for that review. I was like, wow, this is a thing that, and that's one of the good things about social media is we're all connected. Um, and, you know, I've even had like Peter Straub, like, like actually Stephen King retweeted me last January before I started writing because I, I, tweeted about a book that Bev Vincent wrote about the dark tower. And I go, I just got this in the mail. If you haven't read it and you're, a, you know, a tower junkie, you got to pick this up. It's amazing. And, and Stephen King retweeted it and it blew up. And 
the book sold out on on uh, Amazon within like a, that day. And Bev Vincent like messaged me and was like, thank you for doing that, man. It's like number, it's in the top 10 now on Amazon, like fiction or whatever. And it was just like, you never know like when something's going to take off and when, mm. you know, you can affect someone's life. And that, that really was something special to me. Um, and I'll never forget it. And uh, people have already forgotten about it, but I never will. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, on that chance. note, in full transparency, there is no podcast. I'm just collecting writers to promote my book <laughs> when uh, it finally comes out. <laughs> hey, I'll be there. I'll be there day one, day zero. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I think that's just about everything I got, man. Is there anything you want to leave people with? Um, for sure, make sure they uh, know where they can find you online and get your books and stuff too. Yeah. Just look me up. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and one of those awful TikTok things. I, I <laughs> horrible at it, but I do some stuff on there once in a blue moon, but just look me up. Joshua Marcella. I'm like one of two in the world. So nice. it's not too hard to find me. I have books, uh, a couple books on Amazon, um, a couple short stories that are published in uh, a couple things. Like you just Google, just look up my name. You'll find them. Uh, and reach out to me if you ever have feedback or you read a book and you liked it. I, I love feedback. I love uh, making friends and stuff. So don't be, don't be shy. Um, and uh, yeah, if you ever have a dream, you just got to chase it because you never know. It could, it could totally change your life. And, and uh, don't let, you know, don't let fear take the wheel. Just go out and do it. Um, and that's pretty much, that's all I got. That's it. Hell Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, man. Well, hang out for a second after we uh, after we turn this thing off. Uh, thank you, everyone. Make sure you go out and check out Joshua, Marcella. Get on your favorite uh, social media of choice and then buy his damn books. Um, thank you so much for coming on, man. It was uh, great to have you. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me, man. Thanks again to Joshua Marcella for coming on the show. Josh, you're the man. Hope we get to talk again soon. Everybody else, make sure you check out his links, check out all his stuff. Big shout out to Hey Guys Media Group for getting me in the podcast game. And a big shout out to Kirk Ross from Talk in the Attic for your technical support on this one. Thanks, everybody. Love you. Mwah!